0: Is the guard correct say say oh say is the guard is the guard correct it was not in one flash he saw it in spite of his diagrams and descriptions they had got the shoulder knots all wrong the 18th century had never known that sort of thing he looked at them for the first moment almost with the pure satisfaction of the specialist he almost somewhere in him joined in that insane jangle No, no, no. The guard is wrong. Oh, wrong. Say, I say. He looked, and he swung as if on his rope, as if at a point of decision to go on or to climb up. He walked slowly along the line, round the back, negligent of remarks and questions, outwardly gazing, inwardly swinging. After that first glance, he saw nothing else clearly. Say yes or no. The shoulder knots could be altered easily enough, all twelve, in an hour or so's work. Or pass them, take us as we are, say yes. They could be defended then, and there, with half a dozen reasons, They were no more of a jumble than Stanhope's verse. But he was something of a purist. He did not like them. His housekeeper, for that matter, could alter them that evening, under his direction, and save the costume makers any further trouble. Is the guard, is the Grand Duke's guard, correct? A voice penetrated him. Hugh was saying, One must have one's subordinates exact, mustn't one? There was the slightest stress on subordinates, or was there? Wentworth looked askance at him. He was strolling superb by his side. Pauline said, We could alter some things, of course. His silence had made her anxious. He stood away and surveyed the backs of the guard. He could, if he chose, satisfy and complete everything. He could have the coats left at his house after the rehearsal. He could do what the honor of his scholarship commanded. He could have them returned. It meant only his being busy with them that one evening, and concerning himself with something different from his closed garden. He smelt the garden. Mrs. Perry's voice said, is the guard correct? He said, yes, it was over. He could go.
1: out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
0: Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of Literature at Emanuel College in Georgia, and tireful corrector of electric papers. And joining me today, we have Serena Higgins. Serena recently received her PhD from Baylor University, where she studied magic and modernist theater. And she's a faculty member at Signum University, where she also coordinates the Writer's Forge coaching service. She's the editor of the book, The Inklings and King Arthur, and is currently co-editing a volume with Brenton Dickinson called Gardeners of the Galaxies, How Imaginary Worlds Teach Us to Care for This One. How are you doing, Serena?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you, Chris.
0: Thanks so much for joining us again to talk, Charles Williams.
1: It's a great uh, pleasure.
0: It is. And we also have Sophie Burkhart. Sophie is a fellow podcaster and an Inklings fan. Check out her podcast at Beneath the Willow Tree for musings on life, philosophy, and literature. How are you doing, Sophie?
2: I am great, happy to be here.
0: Good, good, good. When C.S. Lewis read Charles Williams' Descent into Hell, he wrote to congratulate him. He called it a thundering good book and real purgation to read. As well as much the best book you've given us yet. In the first place, I find the form of evil that you're dealing with much more real than the evil with a big E that appears in the other books. Lewis also said that while in sheer writing Williams had gone up a whole class, he disliked what he called Williams' Gertrude Steinisms, such as Eves, Eves, Guard, Card, etc., as well as the conversations between Stanhope and Pauline. And Descent into Hell, I agree, is among the best of Charles Williams' novels, if not the best. They're so called spiritual thrillers in which everyday decisions made by modern people hold profound moral and metaphysical meaning. The novel takes place in the fictional town of Battle Hill, where events as seemingly mundane as the rehearsal of a play or an old historian's jealousy are as supernatural and significant as a posthumous journey of a suicide or a girl's flight from her own image when she meets herself walking down the street. Battle Hill contains in itself both heaven, the true city, and hell, for these more than afterlife destinations are tendencies in the heart of every person that may be fostered or destroyed. We have all, it turns out, descended to hell but is it possible to descend there in order to rescue others from it? As the book goes on, it becomes increasingly clear that the only true path out of hell lies through it when we carry each other's burdens. For readers who are joining us for the first time without having listened to the earlier episodes, uh, what should they know going into this episode?
2: This is the most overwhelming of questions. (laughs) I made myself notes this time, so hopefully it'll be somewhat clear. So the book starts, with all of these people coming together to put on a play written by the great Peter Stanhope. And then from there, we sort of have, we have the continuation of work on the play. And that's just like one consistent theme or line that's going on throughout the story. But we also have several different stories happening at once that go on their own separate paths and then kind of come together at various parts there is the story of the suicide. Uh, This is a man who died years before. We sort of see his death, and then later on we see him in this kind of in-between place where he's given a glimpse of hell, but he's given a chance to be redeemed, and he's sort of saved by the love of Margaret Anstruther, who is this wise old grandmother who can see extraordinary visions that Few of us can make any any sense out of so we sort of say by her and then also a little bit I mean Pauline and comes into that storyline a little bit she Pauline is probably I guess the main character of the book we spend the most time with her seems fair to say she has a doppelganger that she sees at various times and she is terrified of it terrified of meeting it up close and personal uh, but then we get to a point where the great Peter Stanhope offers to carry the burden of her fear for her and so we get the notion of substitutionary exchange. So we've already had that happen. And her fear leaves her, and she's able to sort of step into slowly step into a role of carrying other people's burdens, but we haven't gotten to the climax of that yet. On the opposite side of her, so she's ascending up into heaven, descending down into hell is Wentworth. And I this is my personal favorite storyline, which is kind of sad because it's it's so dark. But he has these dreams where he's slowly going down, down, down a rope, and he continues to isolate himself from the community because, um, as a historian, he's jealous of another historian, as Moffat, who actually cares about what he's doing. And then he also is sort of has feelings for this younger woman, Adela Hunt, but she refuses him for the young Hugh Prescott. Um, She doesn't up front refuse him, but she picks the other guy. And so he... Isolates himself more and more, creates this phantasm, uh, which she has a a reality that is more than just sheer imagination. He keeps isolating himself more and more and more in her presence until we get up to this point where he is willing to just completely lie about something that would be easy for him to tell the truth about. And I think that pretty much encapsulates where we're at at this point.
0: Well done. (laughs) Yeah, great. Um, Really good,
1: weaving all the different threads together.
0: Uh, into a big rope, I would say, Serena. What what kind of a spiritual world is this as we kind of head into the middle of of chapter eight? Um, what's what what do we need okay. to know about the kind of moral and spiritual landscape? It's a
1: world in which heaven and hell touch right upon our everyday reality. So unlike C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien's worlds, which are you know otherworldly, we kind of walk out a door or into through a portal into this other world instead this is an ordinary suburb of London where people are doing ordinary things, but the supernatural is impinging upon it. And therefore we have these catalysts of damnation or salvation that can be really, really tiny. They can be a material object or they can be a little decision that somebody makes and will come to the most crucial of those tiny objects and tiny decisions in this chapter. But often in William's novels, there'll be a physical object and people's responses to it will show which direction they're heading for, right? Like the Holy grail or a magical stone or something like that. We don't have Particular object in here, but we do have all these little ways that people respond to a play, a work of poetry, something they hear about their ancestors or with their neighbors, right? That those reveal these monstrously huge realities. In your excellent summary, Sophie, you talked about the substitution and exchange. So this is a moral universe in which an individual's spiritual decisions have eternal and infinite consequences, right? So in which individual and seemingly ordinary people. People can affect real change on a cosmic level. So I think those are some elements of the moral spiritual world. What do you think? Does that seem accurate?
0: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's very well put. Yeah, and especially I, I like that you touched on the small decisions that people make, right? It's not about like, you know, you heard a sermon in a church and you came forward, or you know, what we might think of in the evangelical world as like this is the big decision that caused me to, you know, be turned from. From hell to heaven or, or whatever no in in Williams every moment is infused with grace and you can choose against that grace or for that grace so it's like at every second there's an altar call which is incredibly beautiful and also like it's a little bit of pressure to, to live terrifying. with, um, to, to be honest. Right, because the I,
1: steps to hell also are not like murders and betrayals of one's country and denial of one's friends. No, they're, they're tiny little handholds down that rope towards hell.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's so crucial that Wentworth doesn't feel fear, right? The things that lead us to heaven Heaven make us afraid but the things that lead us down to hell do not. They're things that we choose because they bring us comfort. Last time we got about halfway through chapter 8 and didn't quite didn't quite finish it and we started today by reading the passage with the uniforms and and I want to talk about that. Uh, But but what's been going on in this chapter eight dress rehearsal? Is there anything more specific we need to to say that we've seen so far?
1: There's further development of Wentworth's relationship with the real and the false Adela and the fact that he is now preferring this succubus that his own imagination has given birth to uh, so that he can't even be bothered with the real Adela anymore.
0: Yeah, for a while, he has to carry her over the threshold, kind of like a some other vampire, creature of the night sort of thing, right? Where you, where you have to take them through. And like, as he's doing it, he realizes like, well, the real Adela would be heavier than this, right? <laughs> And uh, and his mind just like puts that away, and I was like, no, 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 this is this is this is the real thing. Also, a
1: terrible parody of the bridegroom carrying the bride over the threshold, yes. right? And so he's rejected that possibility, the possibility of having a real woman who might be heavy to carry and sometimes difficult to live with, and instead he prefers himself, really, yeah, an emanation of himself.
0: Increasingly, he doesn't go out in public, and we have Sophie. I forget how much we touched on this last time. We we hear about succubi and incubi and and things like that, that there are are creatures that, you know, are not quite human that give people what they think they want. Gradually, Wentworth starts to feel that he wants to hurt or kill Adela because she seems to be threatening this fake reality that, that he's created for himself with the false Adela. But then when he meets her in dress rehearsal, he lets go of that idea, because this Adela is nothing like his actual beloved, right? Um, and, and so we see how far removed this fantasy is that he's had from the woman that he, you know, started out thinking he liked or, or was in love with or whatever else. Wentworth has a series of very awkward interactions with people during the dress rehearsal. It just does not seem quite mentally all there because he really resents being out in public. He just wants to go back. He wants to retreat back into his safe little room with his fantasy. And then comes the big moment. He is asked, in his professional opinion, as a historian, did they get the shoulder was the shoulder knots on the guard? Did they get it right? And he He knows that they got it completely wrong and he should care about this sort of thing as a historian, but he does not. He's decided to lie. Yes, it is correct. So they leave him alone and stop bothering him so he could go home. Uh, That is the moment at which his damnation is sort of complete because the very thing that he's supposed to care about, he's stopped caring about it. And so he's lost in in some ways his, um, his function in relation to the city. Thoughts on that? Questions? Concerns?
1: I think this was the first passage in all of Williams that made me realize what he's doing with these tiny little steps, how something so incredibly small as the way it's probably a piece of braiding, right, a piece of rope or something that makes a pattern on the shoulder of these military uniforms. It's just twisted incorrectly. It's such a tiny detail. It really doesn't matter, Right. So it's not the piece of fabric that's the problem. And it's not even necessarily the fact that he doesn't correct it that's a problem. It's the fact that it's a rejection of community and it's a rejection of integrity because by his rejecting it, he's causing people who trusted him to do something wrong when they were trusting him to set them right. You know, They cared about historical accuracy and yet he can't be bothered because he just wants to go home and have... An evening with this false Adela. He doesn't want to spend any time with other humans. And then also it's throwing away all the integrity of his field, of academia, of history, of facts. And facts were really important to Charles Williams. He had this idea that one of the big mental and spiritual wrongs that we can commit is just rejecting facts And he almost went as far as Blake, that everything that is, is holy, right? That just because something exists, it's obviously part of the will of God. And so we have to submit to the reality of facts, however awkward they might be, or uncomfortable for us.
0: Yeah, there's a great passage earlier on where um where Margaret Anstruther is like vaguely bothered by Lily Samil and she's she's sort of like, Well, the Lord had allowed her to exist, and so she must have some positive role to play before this is all said and done. I like that. It's very Augustinian, right? It's it's very kind of all that exists only becomes evil through kind of being knotted, that that existence itself, because God created it is holy.
1: There's a negation, uh, there's a rejection.
0: What's weird to me about this is that I could see, I can understand a world and I'd be terrified to live in such a world. And perhaps I do live in such a world where tiny, tiny decisions move us inexorably toward holiness or toward damnation. Why wouldn't committing suicide be one of those decisions? If all the little decisions really matter, you would think putting a rope around your neck and hanging yourself as the suicide does, who is given another chance in the the hereafter, you'd think that that would be kind of ultimate rejection of community, like much more so than like not correcting shoulder knots. Interestingly, both have to do with rope, which is weird.
1: The, The man who commits suicide, he explicitly rejects community. He's purposefully doing it to get away from his boss and to get away from his wife, whom he very troubling, troubling just describes as a nagging voice in an upper room over and over and over. And he's he's afraid that it hasn't succeeded and he's still alive and that the voice will come after him. So I agree with you, Chris. I think it's sort of problematic that that man explicitly rejected community and chose death over
2: community. So yeah, it's kind of, it's perplexing.
0: I know, Sophie, do you have, do you have a corrective to offer?
2: No, not necessarily. But I was thinking when I was rereading this earlier today, there's this these couple of lines on page 142 where it says, Like the dead man on his flight down the hill, he declined communion. But he to whom more room and beauty and life had been given, chances of clarity and devotion was not now made frightening to himself. He had not known fear, nor did he find fear, nor was fear the instrument of salvation. So I feel like it has something to do with the circumstances. As if Whitworth had more opportunity for to have clarity about what the world is really like. He had more chances to love. I mean, I don't know if these are good enough reasons in the end but it seems like because of the life he had, he doesn't need a second chance after after death. Whereas the other man for some reason did. And I don't know, I think it has something to do with the notion of fear. Like the other man just needs a little fear in him, and then he's able to not choose hell, whereas nothing is gonna stop Wentworth from doing it. So I don't know. That was like the only clarifying passage that I thought has has something to do with why this is so much more important than suicide.
1: That's really good. Yeah. This might be a side note, and then I'll bring it back more directly, but I think there is a little bit of a political undertone going on here. Williams is known for being the furthest quote unquote left of the inklings. He was the most concerned about poverty and social class of things that now we would probably call social justice, is the most concerned about those things. And there are several passages that talk about the man being driven to suicide by his circumstances and by the way he was treated. He was dehumanized over and over and over, and he could only get the hardest of manual labor and then was even fired from those jobs and was always cold and hungry and wet and miserable. I think there's a certain sense that he was driven to suicide by the systemic injustice of the economic Situation in which he found himself. Do you think that's fair?
0: I think that's very likely what Williams was getting at. And 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 Sophie, I think that's a great passage to cite. I was trying to remember where that was, and I was asking that question. I couldn't. I definitely see that. I don't know that I find it satisfying, but um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I add think...
1: one other, and see if you like yes. a bit more. I taught this book once to a bunch of honors students, and we had a very long, detailed, and somewhat macabre conversation about does he actually commit suicide? Hmm. Because at the very last minute, he changes his mind and he he tries to stop, but he trips and he gets tangled in the rope and gravity takes hold and he swings out off the building and ends up hanging anyway. And we went very carefully, word by word, mm. but we were still not a hundred percent sure in the end because um, it goes back and forth with his intention. Yeah. But if he changed his mind at the last minute and died repenting of his desire to commit suicide, I wonder if that might possibly yeah. tie into this yeah. second chance. And I think I'm think we'll- not postulating a, a general theology of, of yeah. suicide. Williams' part here right, right, is in right. this particular
0: case. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point, and yeah, there is there is definitely some fumbling going on in that second chapter, right? Yeah, I, w- I want to talk. I, wanna, I think we'll talk more about him in in chapter nine, um, especially as he relates to being kind of like one of the masses of poor, and and his lack of individuation specifically kind of bothers me. I have a problem with the idea that because someone doesn't have education or money, they they don't have moral agency because my experience with very poor people has been they have a whole lot of moral agency like more so than a lot of very educated people and in some cases yeah Yeah, that's Um, a really important
1: point but Wentworth was also offered chance after chance after chance mm -hmm. after chance and he has been climbing down this road yeah definitely
0: Another thing about this I wanted to bring up is Stanhope, because Stanhope keeps seeing people acting out his—I mean, it's, it's his play. It's his whole play that he's written, and he keeps just kind of chuckling at people who are reading his poetry in a way that is not correct. And you'd think that if poetry is so gosh-danged important, that might be as damning a thing not to correct as the shoulder knots on, on the guard. I was wondering if you all can help me parse this out as to why this is wrong in Wentworth's case, not to use his sort of specialization to help them do this right, but it's actually right and correct for Stanhope to kind of step back and let them perform the play in a way that apparently is not great.
1: Because it's his. I think that's a really big difference. It's Stanhope's play. So I think his correcting them would seem arrogant, would seem that he was putting himself above them. Whereas Wentworth was supposed to have a scholar's objective relationship with this thing outside of himself. And also they asked Wentworth to correct them. They came to him and said, let's consult with you. Will you correct this? Stanhope has graciously submitted himself and his art to Mrs. Perry's direction. And on cases when she comes and asks him, he gives his opinion, which they usually then promptly ignore, Um, but he does give it when he's asked. But I I think it's more like if you're trying to correct the way someone was treating yourself, or if you were trying, the way someone was saying something about your personal appearance or something, because the play is so much a part of himself. I think it's an act of humility and sacrifice that he's sitting back and letting them do this on
0: their own yeah that makes that makes a lot more sense yeah that's that's very clarifying thank you i'm um,
2: thinking too that it has to do with your relation to the community which i mean is, is basically what you're saying like if stanhope com- constantly told them they were doing it wrong that would destroy community whereas the way he's doing it is encouraging community and wentworth is the opposite and then also even on page 144 when it says um they the shoulder knots could be defended then and there with half a dozen reasons they are no more of a jumble than stanhope's verses but he was something of a purist. He did not like them. I think part of it has to be of, I I don't think Stanhope is a a purist in the way that Wentworth is a purist. Like, I think it has to do with the fact of he specifically does not like the shoulder knots and he... It's not even that he doesn't care. Like he recognizes that he doesn't like them and then he chooses not to say anything about it. And I don't, it doesn't seem to bother Stanhope personally too much that his play isn't act out, acted out to perfection. So it seems like it has to do with more of those, the, the individual way in which they react to what's going on and then the way that the community is involved.
1: Really good. And doesn't it also come from Stanhope's knowledge of the people? He knows that they cannot speak the poetry any better than they are because he has this belief that poetry is reality. And so you can only speak it from your whole life's experience. And only if you have loved in certain ways and experienced exchange in certain ways and lived through grief and so forth. So he couldn't correct them because they are not yet the people who could speak his verse correctly.
0: That is great. Well, I feel like that question has been answered for, for me for sure. <laughs> um, so thank you both so much, and I think I think that's it's definitely key. Both that it bothers, it would bother the real Wentworth if he wasn't increasingly becoming a phantom of himself, right? Um, it would bother him a lot more, um, and uh, and and also the fact that they are asking Wentworth to play his role as a historian. So well said. The other major thing that happens in this chapter that pauline is having a pretty grand time Um, she's enjoying the dress rehearsal and then she realizes that the woodcutter in the play is building a fire at about the same place on stanhope's property that her ancestor john struther was born this leads her to this sort of morose meditation on death and fear and the horrible things that people do to each other and that's when she uh mentions to stanhope it all seems going very well she said with a coldness in her voice that rose from the creeping hollow of the darkness, You think so? Did you know that an ancestor of mine was burnt alive? Just here. He turned to walk by her. I did, he said. I'd read it, of course. After all it's my house, and your grandmother spoke of it. She said, Well and then repentedly, I'm sorry, but we're all so happy. The play, the fire, our fire, it's all so wonderful. And yet we can do that. How can we be happy unless we forget, and how can we forget How can we dare forget? He said, forget nothing. Unless everything's justifiable, nothing is. But don't you forget perhaps something else? She looked at him with question. He went on, mightn't his burden be carried too? She stopped. She said, staring, but he's dead. There's the suggestion that Stanhope makes that Pauline might be called to carry her ancestor's burden for him, which is, Um, to me, fun and and super trippy.
1: Pretty astonishing.
0: Yeah, and so she's she's wrestling with this into the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next. Any other things that you all would want to make sure, you know, talk about in chapter eight?
1: Williams wrote a play called Thomas Cranmer of Canterbury, which was his Canterbury Festival play. And the most famous Canterbury Festival play is T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. And they're both about these martyrs named Thomas. And T.S. Eliot's play was about a martyr who actually was killed there in Canterbury, right? Like famously, Thomas Beckett was, was murdered in the, in the sanctuary uh, right by the altar, killed right in his church. But when Eliot's play was first performed, it was not performed on the exact spot. It was in the chapter house, which is right next door. Later, it was revived and it was played on the exact spot so that the actor playing uh, Thomas Beckett would act the death in almost the same spot. Hmm. Now, Williams' play is a little bit different because Thomas Cranmer, though he was of Canterbury, he was killed in Oxford, if I'm getting that correctly, but he was burnt at the stake. So we have these really interesting resonances here about a martyr whom Williams had in his mind. he was thinking about an actual historical martyr who was burnt at the stake and he himself had written a play about that martyr performed on the site of another important historical ecclesiastical martyrdom. So I think that some of these ideas were really vivid in William's mind. He wrote another one of his plays under the pseudonym Peter Stanhope and the actors didn't actually know his real name and he went to the rehearsals under the name Peter Stanhope, but like they called him that when he was there. So I just think it's really fun to have this like triangulation of real things in William's life that kind of converge behind this chapter, I think
0: yeah yeah did you say i think before you said that was judgment at kelmsford is I that think right so yeah okay I think it okay at
1: yeah.
0: yeah that's super cool i love the intersection too of sort of fox's book of martyrs and yeah. the tempest right like there's this weird 16th and century and 17th century thing going on with this where you have these um as they're performing something that's kind of like the the tempest she's remembering something you know that that people who had watched the original Tempest would have remembered, although I don't know that the Tempest would have made them think of it.
1: And that all, I think, comes around the idea of Stanhope as a new Shakespeare, right, as a Shakespeare for our century.
0: Yep, yep. It's interesting to me that Pauline, who's the major character of the book, is, you know, it it seems like, anyway, a, a minor character in the play, while... Adela, who very much feels very important, she's an important character in the book, but not as important as Pauline, right? Um, plays, the, plays the main character in the play. Um, so it's this, it's this fun sort of reversal of importance in terms of, in terms of the characters and in terms of these plots. Um, maybe
1: another iteration of that theme that it's the ordinary who do extraordinary things, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's these small moments and small characters who carry cosmic significance.
0: Okay, so we've got Chapter 9, The Tryst of the Worlds, which is the crisis point and fulfillment of so much that has happened. We pick up with the ghost, and the ghost is is wandering, but now the ghost is wandering in the correct direction. Or I should say the dead man. He never calls him the ghost, he calls him the dead man. But the, the dead man, the suicide, is wandering now back toward the ladder that he used to hang himself on after being spoken to kindly by the dying Margaret Anstruther, Pauline's grandmother, he's going back toward uh, what Williams calls the city, William says um, he had the city in mind, he had his wife in mind, which is a sort of it's a reversal of, of that which caused him to kill himself in the in the in the first place. Right. These these things that had been things that drove him to like almost damn himself right through um, through suicide are now uh, the means of his salvation because they are because they are real and they have to do with grappling with the reality of other people. Right, uh, and uh, even even when they're inconvenient, he's turned back and he's making his way towards the city, and he sees the figure of a girl. And then we break off from his perspective, and we pick up with Pauline's perspective. But yeah, what are what are your thoughts about this first part of this chapter with the with the dead man?
1: It feels very like the S. Eliot poem to me. It feels like the hollow men crowding together, you know, like straw, like the sounds of rats in a cellar. This beginning feels very modern to me, like faceless crowds of workers.
0: Yeah. The, the dead man is, is interesting to me partly because he's kind of the everyman, poor dead man. He he seems to make most of his decisions almost kind of in response to stimuli, um, like oh this is not nice. I'm going to go away from this, and I'm going to go towards this. And he seems to do this both when he you know both when he's alive and also you know afterlife. There's a kind of dullness to him, although increasingly he's becoming sort of sharp, right? And 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 becoming up until the point where later in this chapter he speaks with Pauline, um, and. and and seems like a fully realized individual. Um, but up until that point, he seems very much a shade. Um, and he reminds me both the kind of gibbering shades in Homer, right, who seemed to be less than they were when they were alive, um, and he also seems um, close to sort of what Lewis describes when he talks about most people, increasingly most people uh, becoming sort of candidates from limbo because they never make real choices Uh, when he when he, um, you know, sort of talks about them and Screwtape proposes a toast and the problem with, you know, using the word democracy in a certain way. Do you all think this sort of lack of distinctness that we've seen with the dead man up until now? Is it more because he's dead or is it more because he's lower class? Why is he the only one without a name? Why is he the only one that doesn't seem to make choices?
1: I read it more in the C.S. Lewis sense that he didn't have a distinct personality because he had never really made sharp choices, that he he hadn't become a full person. I think of it in terms of until we have faces. How can the gods meet us face to face until we have faces? That he sort of hasn't really faced up to his sufferings or the consequence of his choices until after this one big decision that he made. So I didn't read it as just because he's dead or as a social class commentary in this case.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, and I, I, think, I think I agree. If Wentworth he
1: wasn't spiritually a very vivid person, right? Right. Because he hadn't really grasped the significance of his own decisions and of his own place yeah. in the universe.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that Wentworth is becoming increasingly like this as well, right? Um, he seems to be losing himself, even as he's choosing himself to... Commit a Gertrude Steinism or what Lewis calls Gertrude Steinism. <laughs> so the scene shifts and we have Pauline and Margaret Anstruther. Anstruther is coming very close to death after talking with Pauline a bit about, um, sure, you can carry the burdens of people who are your ancestors, right? Or says it in a very roundabout way. She says, Would you be so very charming as to go out and see if anyone wants you? Mrs. Anstruther said quite distinctly. Up by Mr. Wentworth's. She's wandering, the nurse whispered. Pauline, used to Mrs. Anstruther's extremely unwandering habits, hesitated to agree, but it was certainly rather odd. She said with a tenderness a little fractured by doubt, wants me, darling? Now? Of course, now, her grandmother answered. That's the point. I think perhaps he ought to get back to the city. She looked around with a little sigh. Will you? And so, in response to her promise to go up to Wentworth's, you know, and despite the fact that the grandmother's nurse basically you know says well you know don't pay too much attention because her mind's kind of going she keeps this promise and she, and she and she goes or she she prepares to go and this is really the last interaction we see between the two of them so there really is a real risk involved in her doing her grandmother's bidding that like she might be out when her grandmother dies right it's it's a, and it brings up this this motif of obedience right that that we've that we've seen several times already that she's obeying her grandmother's possibly dying wish uh, which is which is interesting. I was kind of like, okay, their conversation is weird and highly elusive. Peter Stanhope, Margaret said, must have been frightened many times. Oh, poetry, Pauline exclaimed bitterly. That's different. You know it is, grandmother. In seeing, Margaret asked, and as for being... You must find out for yourself. He can carry your parcels, but not you. Couldn't he, Pauline said? Not that I want him to. I'm um, talking about, you know, their their ancestors. So I was like, eh, you know, th- this is this is sort of this mystical dying woman possibly tinged with senility, which perhaps is like real spiritual vision or, or something like that. And then, like, she decides randomly to call Stanhope up when she's heading, heading towards the door, and they have a very elusive... Uh, meandering, like, sort of odd conversation.
1: In between the two, though, she has this vision, if it is a vision, she has this one page when apparently the house is burning around her because she's sort of thrust into her martyred ancestors consciousness, I guess for a quick moment in between leaving her grandmother's bed and and going out to search for the man who died, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. She caught up a hat and flung herself at the door, her blood burning within her as the house burned around. The air was fiery to her sense. She breathed a mingled life as if the flames of poetry and martyrdom rose together in the air within the air and touched the outer atmosphere with their interior force. She ran down the stairs, but already her excitement being more excitement than strength flagged and was pain. Action was not yet so united with reaction as to become passion. The doubt she must have of what was to come took its old habitual form. Her past pretended to rule her de facto sovereign, and her past was fear. She gets worried that maybe she's worried, it sounds like, and she calls Stanhope, and then she realizes that she doesn't need to call Stanhope.
1: That makes sense. So is she suddenly worried for a minute that the exchange isn't working, that her fear of her doppelganger is coming back? Is that what happens?
0: I think <laughs> it's really it's really this it just gets more and more it's opaque
1: more accepting because remember he had said call me up anytime even in the middle of the night mm-hmm. so maybe it's her accepting the necessity of relying on others yeah maybe she's just sinking into that because before you know she said what about my dig- dignity wasn't it my dignity and mm-hmm. he said oh dignity well if we are of that sort and he made fun of her <laughs> so yeah maybe she's just yeah. purposefully not standing on her own dignity
0: yeah, saying,
1: yeah. I, I need somebody. I'm going to make that gesture.
0: Yeah, I think both. Of, I think both of those things are probably true.
1: Yeah, she's worried. It could only be that her ghostly image lay now and wait for her to emerge into its desolate kingdom. She grit her teeth. So she's about to re-shoulder her own burden. Right. Yeah. The thing must be done. She's thinking, I'm going to have to go out in the street by myself in the middle of the night, which I've never done. But I don't think she's ever done that before because of her fear of her doppelganger. Mm-hmm. And I think she's just about to reshoulder her own burden and then seeing the telephone remembers, oh, I don't have to carry this burden because yeah. he's carrying it. So I wonder if that's why she rings yeah. him
0: yeah. Up. yeah, yeah.
2: Just thinking about the bottom of page 161 of this notion of she has more excitement than strength. And then that flags of like, it seems like she's caught up at first in this excitement of recognizing the substitution that, stanhope has done for her and she can substitute for the martyr but it's more excitement than a like actually lasting enduring strength and that's like action was not yet so united with reaction as to become passion so like it hasn't become such a deep part of her yet to be able to keep her strong through reacting to i don't know external stimuli of crazy things going on that she's not expecting i don't know if this makes sense but (laughs) i'm like Mm -hmm. thinking through this in my mind it's Understanding the doctrine of substitution is not so ingrained in her that it can stand strong against everything else that's going on. And so, because she doubts that for a second, then the de facto of fear kind of pops in and fills up the empty space until she's able to kind of recover herself, recognize that Stanhope substituted for her. She doesn't need to be afraid anymore. And then she can go and substitute for somebody else. Or at least that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Those words are saying. Yeah, you're
1: right. Because her mental habit through all of her past life has been be afraid, be afraid, be afraid yeah so when the adrenaline of that rush of like running down the stairs through the vision of fire and you know i'm going to save my ancestor when that adrenaline ebbs for a second i think you're right that old mental habit of fear comes back so maybe that's why she does that physical action of picking up the phone and calling to try to establish this new habit, this new habit in sanctity to counteract the old habit of fear.
0: Ooh, that's great. Yeah. And, and decides like, not I oughtn't to disturb him because that's, uh, again, giving, giving in to fear of the other, right? To fear of inconveniencing someone else, right? And, and instances, I, I ought to disturb him, right? Because that requires humility. She said again, Grave, are you awake enough to hear me? Complete with attention, he answered. Whatever it is, how very, very right of you. That's abstract, not personal. Concede the occasion. Which, increasingly, I can't make head or tails of what he says to her. <laughs> but and that sorry. reportedly
1: is exactly the way Charles Williams spoke to his friends. Oh,
0: boy. I don't doubt it. So she ends up saying, I thought I wanted to ring you up, but when I did, I didn't. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> he says if it gives you any pleasure but you might have needed forgiveness in fact if you hadn't god's not mine pardon peril like love is only ours for fun essentially we don't and can't but you want to go dot 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 you'll remember so, it's like so a very just,
1: very difficult writing style but it does it does work if you yeah. really stop and unpack it it, it really yeah. does work but man it's quite the Compressed syntax
0: here. Yeah, yeah. I think part of what's going on, possibly, is if Stanhope is Charles Williams' poetic alter ego, then he's going to speak the way that Charles Williams writes poetry, which which is sometimes difficult to follow. But uh, yeah, maybe that's uh, maybe that's unfair.
1: Also meant to be difficult if you haven't been a hundred percent tracking because it's supposed to imply this intimacy between them and this hundred percent connection between their minds on the spiritual plane so that they barely have to say anything and they read each other's minds and the same thing with Pauline and her grandmother right they're the only three people in this book who have this mystical experience of of exchange so you know just like somebody you've lived with for decades, a spouse or a sibling. You barely have to say anything and you finish each other's sentences and you know these these oodles of implications behind a phrase. So I think that's going on here as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so she goes up to Wentworth's house, obeying her uh, obeying her grandmother, and she encounters the, the dead man. She doesn't realize that it's the dead man. He just looks like a workman who's down on his luck, right? And you have this moment three times, I think where he salutes her. To, to me, that's really meaningful just because I know Williams was a big Dante fan um, and The sort of defining moments of Dante's life, what set him on the path toward God, was being saluted in the street or not saluted in the street by uh, by Beatrice. But yeah, there's this exchange of words right between uh, between Pauline and uh, and the dead man, and and they and they talk with each other, and he's asking the way to London, and she tells him the way to London, uh, offers him a place to stay, and he says, No, I need to be going. And she says, Go in peace. Yeah, really? really really kind of significant moment. It completes what seemed to happen with with her grandmother and the dead man when her grandmother said, my dear, how tired you are. Pauline is actually offering the dead man a place to rest. He says, no, I need to be going. I need to to keep going. What are you all's thoughts on this? Um, Why do you think he needs to go to London? And why do you think go in peace is the thing that causes what happens next?
1: Oh, why London? Because it's the city. And the city is the geographical heart of Williams's theology. He was not a country boy (laughs) like the other Inklings. He wasn't one who would go on hikes across the countryside for days on end. He was a man of the city and the city to him was the earthly expression of heaven, of the kingdom of God, of, of God working things out in an orderly fashion on earth. And yeah, Dante is a beautiful place to go for that, for the image of the city or Augustine, of course city of god so by going back to london he's he's entering the kingdom of god
0: yeah again i I mentioned this i think in the last podcast but it it reminds me of um going to see a monastery in romania and the priest kind of like pointing out all this iconography and heaven had just like all these overlapping saints in it right and he said i always tell people in my church if you think it's too small here just wait till you get to heaven because it's really crowded in heaven yeah williams always reminds me of that when I when I read him this this idea of you need to you need to run towards people and you need to be sanctified by even the parts of them that are difficult that takes place in a in a city uh, which is if nothing else a big collection of people he also saw
1: it as this extremely orderly complex system right it's a network a mesh or a web of glory in which everything is working together and Extremely complex ways, but it's all harmonized in a way that you can't see when you're when you're just one little part of it. Something that we yeah. ought to remember when we're paying for parking in New York or driving through Dallas to the airport.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard not to think of um, the man who was Thursday and the uh, the one poet thinking. It how poetic it is that uh when they call victoria station on the train they get to victoria station not someplace else uh, that there's that there's such a glory and this kind of order right that's a really good example. Uh, she says, Go in peace to him. And something happens to him, right? He he stops and sort of shudders. And she walks toward him, thinking for sure, oh shoot, he's turning into my doppelganger now. He must be. This is this has all been a big trap. But she comes toward him anyway, and instead of seeing her doppelganger, she hears a voice call out um and it's a it's a guy with uh with a cloth doublet on with breeches below and a heavy head of thick hair above and the arms suddenly went up again and a voice sounded it said in a shout of torment lord god lord god so he's he's calling out lord god lord god she says can i can i help you And he says, Lord God, I cannot bear the fear of the fire. She said, what fire? And still with his back to her, he answered, the fire they will burn me in today unless I say what they choose. Lord God, take away the fear if it be thy will. Lord God, be merciful to a sinner. Lord God, make me believe. And then she's there in this prison cell of her of her ancestor right or she can at least see it and uh, and he's saying make me believe make me believe the choice was first in her omnipotence awaited her decision she knew what she must do but she felt as she stood that she could no more do it than he she could never bear that fear the knowledge of being burnt alive of the flames of the faces of the prolongation of pain she knew what she must do she opened her mouth and could not speak In front of her, alone in his foul Marian prison, unaware of the secret means the Lord he worshipped was working swiftly for his peace, believing and unbelieving, her ancestor stood centuries off in his spiritual desolation and preluding agony of sweat. He could not see beyond the years the child of his house who strove with herself behind and before him. The morning was coming his heart was drained another spasm shook him even now he might recant pauline could not see the prison but she saw him she tried to choose and to speak behind her her own voice said give it to me john Struther. she heard it in his cell and chains as the first dawn of the day of his martyrdom broke beyond the prison it spoke and sprang in his drained heart and drove the riotous blood again through his veins give it to me give it to me John Struther he stretched out his arms again he called Lord Lord it was a devotion and an adoration accepted and thanked Pauline heard it trembling for she knew what stood behind her and spoke it said again give he fell on his knees and in a great roar of triumph he called out I have seen the salvation of my God Pauline sighed deeply with her joy this then after so long was their meeting and their reconciliation their perfect reconciliation for this other had done what she had desired and yet not the other but she for it was she who had all her life carried a fear which was not her fear but another's until in the end it had become for her in turn not hers but another's her heart was warm as if the very fire her ancestor had feared was a comfort to her now the voice behind her saying, repeating the voice in front, oh, I have seen the salvation of my God. What a moment. This passage
1: is so beautiful.
0: <laughs> it's wonderful.
1: The twists and the turns and one after another, just all the glorious surprises.
0: Yeah. I wanna I wanna parse out what's happening here if we can, but I'd also like to read the next part with the doppelganger.
1: Colleen turned. She thought afterwards she had had no choice then, but it was not so. It was a movement as swift, as instinctive as that with which one hand flies to balance the other, but it was deliberate. She whirled on the thing she had so long avoided, and the glorious creature looked past her at the shouting martyr beyond. She was giddy with the still violence of this last evening. She shut her eyes and swayed, but she was sustained by the air about her and did not fall. She opened her eyes again. There, as a thousand times in her looking glass, there, the ruffled brown hair, the long nose, the firm compressed mouth, the tall body, the long arms, her dress, her gesture. It wore no supernatural splendor of aureole, but its rich nature burned and glowed before her, bright as if mortal flesh had indeed become what all lovers know it to be, its color bewildered by its beauty. Its voice was Pauline's, as she had wished it to be for pronouncing the imagination of the grand art. But no verse, not Stanhope's, not Shakespeare's, not Dante's, could rival the original. And this was the original. And the verse was but the best translation of a certain manner of its life. The glory of poetry could not outshine the clear glory of the certain fact, and not any poetry could hold as many meanings as the fact. One element coordinated original and translation, that element was joy. Joy had filled her that afternoon, and it was in the power of such joy that she had been brought to this closest propinquity to herself. It had been her incapacity for joy, nothing else, that had till now turned the vision of herself aside. Her incapacity for joy had admitted fear, and fear had imposed separation. She knew now that all acts of love are the measure of capacity for joy, its measure and its preparation, whether the joy comes or delays. Her manifested joy whirled on her with her own habitual movement. She sprang back from that immortality, no fear but a moment's truce of wonder and bodily tremor. She looked in her own eyes and labored to speak. A shout was in her. She wished to assent the choice her beatitude had made. The shout sank within her and rose without. She had assented then, or that afternoon, or before this life began. She had offered her joy to her betrayed ancestor. She heard now, though she saw nothing but those brilliant and lucid eyes, the noise of his victorious going. The unseen crowd poured and roared past her. Her debt was paid, and only now she might know why and when she had incurred it. The sacrifice had been accepted his voice was shouting in her ears as fox said he had shouted to him that hath shall be given he had had she had been given to him she had lived without joy that he might die in joy So apparently the first dead man, the suicide, turns into or is somehow replaced by her martyr, uh, her martyred ancestor. And she thinks she's been caught in this trap and that now she'll have to face her doppelganger. But she doesn't. Instead, she has to face John Struther. And she realizes that this is her chance to return the debt that she's incurred because of Stanhope carrying her burden for her. So, all right, okay. She faces up to the moment. Here she is, time has been abolished. She's standing there in the presence of this man who died four centuries ago. And he's he's said specifically what it is that he needs. The fear of the fire is what he cannot carry. And she can't do it. She cannot do it. I mean, who could, right? Who could bear that fear for someone else? Can I keep going? Because this is just my favorite ever. But, But jump in, you or Sophie, if you want to. And so behind her, someone else says that, they will carry the fear of the fire. Give it to me, John Struther. But it's her doppelganger. And it turns out that is her real self, not an evil twin, not a demon aping her shape, but that is her real true glorified self, or you might almost say unfallen self that has the spiritual wherewithal to carry his burden for him. And then as if that's not mind blowing enough, I don't even know if I can say this bit without crying. <laughs> She has been full of fear her entire life because that was her carrying of his burden. She gave up 20 some odd years of joy to her ancestor now on this day, and it was retroactive. So she's never had any joy all her life, but somehow this is the part I want your help on. (laughs) Was she then split in two and the doppelganger was her joy filled, glorious self that could never have, have any fear and could never have its joy and now they finally get to be reunited? Or the doppelganger was able to carry the fear and not have its joy touched. So that part, I am not sure about. But all I know is that it's just absolutely beautiful that she had lived without joy, that he might die in joy. That's astonishing. The first time I read this, I didn't get it at all. I didn't get the doppelganger's role. I just thought that Pauline somehow managed to carry the fear. The second time I read it, I got the doppelganger's presence and that the doppelganger is the one who says, give it to me. And that was mind blowing. I was like, oh, so the doppelganger carries the fear. That makes sense. But now this time I'm like, but if the Pauline of our narrative is the one who's giving it up on this day and it was retroactive, then who is the doppelganger and what di- purpose did she even serve? So I've yeah. just myself into more confusion than I knew I had.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm almost getting it, but not quite.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's how I feel also when I read Tilia Faces, because there's a very similar thing
1: mm-hmm. going on
0: there with, with Psyche and your, all, um as well.
1: It's almost like a time travel narrative, right? Where we yeah. have our person in the present makes a decision – and then goes into the past, and then we get to follow the past person up until they see their future present self making the decision. So it's almost like we have to have the doppelganger to make the decision so that Pauline consents to it, because it wouldn't be a true substitution and exchange if it weren't a consent and a contract. But the fear-bearing Pauline would is unable to make that contract because she's already burdened by the fear. So it's almost like the burdened Pauline is the result of the joy-filled Pauline's decision. Ooh, that's difficult.
0: Hmm, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I see what you're saying there.
1: I, I, I just thought it was like the glorious Pauline, but now I think it's it's who Pauline would have been had she not borne this fear all those 20 years and more. But having made the decision, it then created the fear-bearing self. Am I just making this worse than it needs to be? <laughs> Sophie, help.
2: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking through it. Because there's that passage on 170 when she's thinking through it right after she sighs with joy. She talks about how the other had done what she had desired, but it wasn't the other. It was she. So I don't know. It's some sort of union of them. And then in turn, Stanhope carries it. I don't know. I, and I was looking at, at 172 right after you stopped reading the just this little line i'm probably reading too much into this little line that talks about that now the act was for resurrection and death so i don't know i'm sort of playing along with this notion of perhaps the doppelganger is what she would be like in like her her resurrected self beyond death i don't know um
1: makes a lot of sense and that makes sense with all the Romantic theology that's pulsing through this whole passage. There's that moment, the rich nature of the doppelganger. This is top of 171. It's rich nature burned and glowed before her bright as if mortal flesh had indeed become what all lovers know it to be. Right. And William says this really important idea that when you're first in love, when you first fall in love and you're in that initial glow of almost idolizing the, the other person, you see them as they really were meant to be. You see them as they would have been if they were unfallen or as they will be when they're resurrected and glorified. So she's seeing the romantic theology version of herself. So she's seeing like into heaven, into an Edenic, a restored Edenic vision of herself. I'm sorry if I cut you off, Sophie, you just, you gave me that idea.
2: No, no, I mean, that was, that was mainly what I was thinking. Or even this notion of the doppelganger is her manifested joy. I, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> it's. I think it has something to do with all of, those but there's some way in which it is an other but not but not another uh, of some unity between them going on
1: yes this is the moment when they're reunited right her beatitude her doppelganger leant forward to her as if to embrace the rich presence enveloped her out of a broken and contrite heart she sighed with joy Um, on the inhale breath her splendor glowed again on the exhale the past she stood alone at peace behold i have made all things new so that that's they reunite
2: there and that the, even the line behold i make all things new i mean has everything to do with the final restoration and redemption of the whole world and the new creation so it seems like he's giving us a glimpse of of the final resurrection it, which would make sense because time <laughs> like doesn't really exist here in this in battle hill
1: so just like she's seeing her ancestor 400 years ago she's also seeing her resurrection self x number of years in the future or when time is abolished
2: maybe i feel like that could be a possibility right
1: (laughs) wow and then the word beatitude because she's already been a beatrician moment for the the man who died by suicide when he said when he saw the figure of a girl which is like williams's self-allusion to his title the figure of beatrice so she's been a beatrice and then the doppelganger is her beatitude, like it's herself turned to be beatrified, right? Her Dantean glorified self. Oh, I like that a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. And and also it's called the descent into hell, right? And what did Christ descend to hell to do, right? To to bring people up, right? There's a resurrection involved here. Um, so I still don't know if I could like give sort of a play by play of the mechanics of how exactly this all <laughs> this all happened. But it's really cool and it makes so much makes so much emotional sense. Um, Partly, I think, because I've read The Inklings so much and am used to this idea of catastrophe, right? That this is, um, this is such a beautiful moment of the very thing that she's been frightened to death of all her life becomes... Uh, the means of another's salvation when she herself does not have the ability to save that other. It's an absolutely beautiful moment. The final thing that happens in in this chapter is she talks more with Peter Sandhope and he talks about this idea of gomorrah that uh, the lord's glory he says fell on the cities of the plain of sodom and another we know all about sodom nowadays but perhaps we know the other even better men can be in love with men and women with women and still be in love and make sounds and speeches but don't you know how quiet the streets of gomorrah are haven't you seen the pools that everlastingly reflect the faces of those who walk with their own phantasms with the phantasms aren't reflected and can't be. The lovers of Gomorrah are quite contented, Periel. They don't have to put up with our difficulties. They aren't bothered by alteration, at least till the reign of fire of the glory at the end, for they lose the capacity for change except for the fear of hell. We're setting up this idea, or or further developing this idea, of fire as the glory of God, but also God's judgment, that they're one and the same, and, and the way that they hit you depends on the state you've chosen right and then and then also this idea of Gomorrah as being the opposite not of Sodom but of Zion that Zion is the is the city is the ultimate form of the true city of which all other cities are kind of like copy and uh, and Gomorrah is is the city of complete self-love Right, where where we turn our capacity to love completely inward rather than reaching out to to the other. Any last thing that should be said about this chapter or about this concept of Gomorrah, which ends up becoming quite important?
1: Application inward in the novel, of course, is to Wentworth, that Wentworth is our living example of Gomorrah. When he says when Stanhope says there's no distinction between lover and beloved, they beget themselves on their adoration of themselves. That's exactly what Wentworth has, has done, right? He's begotten this this creature that's now his beloved. And so he's sort of feeding on himself by rejecting anybody else in favor of this own image of
0: himself. Yeah. And it's hard with that not to, not to think of um, Satan in Paradise Lost uh, when he gives birth to sin while he's still in heaven and he doesn't realize it. And then he kind of has a love affair with sin and produces death, which which seems to be an exact analogy to what Wentworth is, is doing with this little figure. So we haven't seen death yet, but I'm sure death will come around in some form or other for, for Wentworth. Yeah.
1: And then to continue that, then death gives birth to the the sins right which then devour her from the inside out in in milton
0: yeah yeah so it's not just charles williams who is weird milton was was (laughs) weird too Quickly, I'll I'll go through basically what happens in chapter 10, the sound of the trumpet. It's a shorter chapter. It's getting increasingly bright. Um, Some people love it. Some people do not like it very much at all, and who the the people who don't like it seem to feel that it's quite hot, uh, and that kind of gives us a clue as to the spiritual condition of those people, based on Stanhope talking about the glory of the Lord falling on Gomorrah. Pauline's grandmother, by the way, has died, she tells Stanhope, and Stanhope acknowledges... That yes, her grandmother died, and they keep on talking about whatever it was they were talking about. It's okay, Stanhope quotes some lines from Paradise. Uh, not from Paradise, from uh, uh, *The Tempest*. Ariel guesses that she was modeled after Ariel. Pauline guesses that either her character is modeled after Ariel, or she is, or or. or or something of the kind. Uh, We pick up with uh, Lily Samil, who's talking to Stanhope, and uh, Lily says, perfection would be so dull, wouldn't it? It's better to think of it than to have it, isn't it? I mean, who wasn't said it's better to be always walking than to get there, which is a great, like, change of better to travel hopefully than to arrive, right? And uh, and Stanhope was just having none of that, and he says, no, thank you very much, he said, laughing outright. I'd rather have perfection than think of it though i don't see why we shouldn't do both and and this sets lily samuel a bit got a little bit about adela who also really doesn't like the heat she is trying to convince pauline now that the play seems to be like seems like it's going to be a, a big success uh, trying to convince pauline to convince stanhope to sort of take the show on the road so that adela's star can rise uh, since she's kind of the star of the play uh we get this odd Exchange between her and Hugh. Um, he tells her to shut up because the play is about to start. This this annoys her, um, and then as the play starts, I forget if it says it starts or as it stops. Uh, but Lily Samille faints, and that's the uh, that's kind of the end of the sound of the trumpet. So I'm sure I uh, did not do very much justice in my in my hurry to to uh, summarize. But what amendments uh, would you all suggest to what I said, or other things that we need to make sure to bring up? in The Sound of the Trumpet.
1: This is the chapter in which uh, Pauline becomes a Jedi Master. <laughs> now that she's done her active exchange, at the top of page 180, she realizes stillness and silence as a, as a new entity or existence in themselves. She was aware of a new thing of speech in relation to the silence In which it lived and from here on out she has a kind of contentment inside herself that's very unusual and this is there's what one character in each of william's novels who has this sort of unshakable calm in the face of whatever happens although we do get a delightful little interchange page 182 when her old self and her new self have a little colloquy adela says the most annoying thing i've always thought this a very remarkable play pauline's heavenly nature said to her other without irritation but with some relevance the hell you have (laughs) so it's like the sanctified self can still say that to the unsanctified self as a kind of pleasant joke um, at adela's expense
0: yeah, that's great. I'm not sure how, but again, I'm not sure how a lot of things work in, in this kind of dynamic between the uh, sanctified and unsanctified Pauline or the resurrected and unresurrected Pauline or whatever it is, right? Yeah, Any anything else worth noting in this, uh, in this short chapter in The Sound of the Trumpet?
1: The narrator tells us something pretty startling and nasty about Adela. Towards the bottom of page 182, the narrator tells us that Adela was not altogether unpracticed in the gymnastics of Gomorrah, her spirit had come near to the suburbs. So that means she's in love with herself. So even though she and Hugh are dating now, it seems like she's starting to turn inward. The way Wentworth was. Uh, we're told that she hates asking favors of Pauline. She disliked subordinating herself. So she's in some danger of sliding down that, that rope that descends into hell if she's not somehow brought back into community. That
0: makes absolute sense for someone who is uh, used to being the star of the show, whether whether in life or in art. But, but yeah, it's the temptation is to think that you are as important as other people seem to be seem to be making you
1: and it's it's starting to mess up her relationship with Hugh as well on the bottom of 184 we're told that early in their relationship there had been between them an amount of half pretended mastery and compulsion so they used to play at like who's who's the boss in this relationship right who wears the pants in this relationship but then when Hugh tells her to shut up she thinks that he's not playing anymore And she has to decide whether to reject or allow that authoritative assumption. So whether she's going to submit and obey or whether she's going to assert herself. I'm not sure which is the right decision there, because I'm not really a big fan of the like, yes, Hugh, whatever you say, Hugh, if he's bullying her and bossing her around. But in the economy of this novel, to submit and to obey and to humble oneself is generally the right decision
2: yeah I thought it was interesting to like right after that how it says that uh, she's Athanasian in spirit that she knew she was right in the world wrong but then un-Athanasian in method that she intended to manage the world and so it feels like one of the first breaking downs of, of her and community because instead of being a part of the community she decides that she's superior to it and is going to just like manage it and, and that's all going to work out just great which obviously that never works <laughs> never works out great so what does, even does just mean, though, that,
1: Athanasian and un I mean,
2: it was through, like, Athanasius knowing that he was, what like, he was what, right. Athanasius Contramundi or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, but his oh, method okay. wasn't to try to manage the world.
1: <laughs> oh, I see.
2: <laughs> I guess. So I guess it's a good thing that she's Athanasian in spirit, potentially, and that if she thinks she's right, she sticks to it. I'm not sure, because when she thinks she's right, she seems to be wrong. Whereas it seems Mm. like Athanasius was probably right.
1: Um. (laughs) (laughs) At least according to Williams.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And then then there are these four options laid out, right? She would neither revolt nor obey nor compromise. She would deceive. And just a moment later, we're told that these are the four only possible alternatives for the human soul. So that's it. That's the only thing you can do in any given situation. Revolt, obey, compromise, or deceive. Take your pick. And obviously the novel wants us to choose to obey. Yeah. Then what happens immediately after that is that Adela is caught up in the play, and I think if I'm reading it right, that in spite of her own residence in the suburbs of Gomorrah, I think Adela does submit to the poetry, I think, and then becomes more than herself in the role of the princess. If
0: I'm reading that right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be that the play is, um, you know, a, a means of salvation for her as well, right? Um, that she is in taking on this role that Stanhope specifically has has written, right? That that she is able to act out something that, that changes her, um, just as just as Pauline does, or you know, slightly different way, but in a, in a similar, yeah, along similar lines. And that that's part of, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, one one question that I tend to have with this novel is is sort of like, well, how does the present cause the past, right? Um, how can you really, if she already knew that her ancestor, John Struther, had done this you know, great feat of bravery and martyrdom. Right? Um, what does it really matter? Whether is is it going to suddenly like? Are we going to get back to the future too? If she does not, you know, take his burden for him, and uh, and suddenly everything's changed. And I think it's more of a dance or a drama that she's taking part in. Right? Something that has been decided beforehand and written out beforehand, and it remains for the individual people to do the actions that have been scripted out for them there's a kind of gift that she gives to John Struthers, and she does take his fear but it's as a part of a it's it's her part in the in the play right um rather than something that she rather than a situation that she's authoring herself right that it's that it's a situation authored by another and she is stepping into that role um and, and and becoming more herself through that So a couple of quick questions before we end so i've been thinking about this a little bit with with peter stanhope and, and us sort of talking about like okay is he does williams just have a really high opinion of himself and is he um just kind of because clearly he wrote under peter stanhope and i wonder if rather than being a vain self-portrait of of williams whether peter stanhope is kind of the good doppelganger of Charles Williams, kind of Charles Williams imagining himself as he would be if he were, you know, resurrected or perfected or, or, or whatever else. Does that, does that sound reasonable or, or is that just me
1: I absolutely hoping... think that's what he's meant to be. I mm-hmm. absolutely think he's trying to write what he wishes to be, you know, what he would be if he were Peter Stanhope, Taliesin, if he were the leader of the company, the Bard, But the problem there is that according to his own romantic theology, it's supposed to be someone else who writes us that way, not ourselves. It's supposed to be the lover who sees the beloved um, as glorious and glorified, not myself looking in the mirror and seeing my glorified self.
0: Yep. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Final goofy question. Peter Stanhope has, has written this play and they are Working on producing it. It is never given a title. And so, what I asked you all to do is to either pick a title for Peter Stanhope's play or write a scene from the second pylon. I want to know which one you decided to do and what you think a good title would be.
1: I think I'm fresh out of surrealistic plastic cohesion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fair enough. I don't have much myself.
1: We could just record a series of rhythmic industrial sounds yeah for the second pylon
0: yeah i mean we don't know that the second pylon even has dialogue right um it probably has lots of mass but uh (laughs) Uh, probably not. We've been
1: doing a lot of home renovation here this week and this afternoon. My husband was doing something with a polishing machine. I could just record that, and make this room, room, room soundtrack to the second pylon.
0: It sounds good. That sounds good. I was thinking for the um, Stanhope's play because there's so much in it about the Tempest, um, and because he references the Tempest throughout, and he kind of plays the role of um, Prospero. Uh, because Prospero himself was probably played by Shakespeare, that a line from The Tempest would work really well as a title for the play, but I have no idea what line. And the best thing I could think of is Oh Brave New World, which of course is already, uh, you know, taken, uh, not for a play, but for a novel. So yeah some some possibilities Admired Miranda, my dukedom got because there's a grand duke, right? Assault on Mercy, which comes from uh, the epilogue at the end, which has, which is so Williamsian, um, like the, um, or rather, Williams is channeling Prospero's epilogue uh, a lot, where he talks about, you know, I need. I, Please pray for me, basically, um, you know, um, and, and I need you in order to get where I need to go. And then, of course, the fact that the play has a bear, um, and this is about bearing each other's burdens. Love bears nice. all things. Other other or, ideas for- poss-
1: exit pursued by a bear.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. And that brings in the other, I mean, I, I think I think there's a lot of nodding towards, towards A Winter's Tale as well.
1: I like the idea of taking something from the epilogue. To the Tempest, because there is a movement in Charles Williams' novels, and this is his next next to last novel. Um, there is a movement away from the very specifically occult material that he learned in the ritual secret societies, and there's a distinct movement towards coherence and towards a much more Christian vocabulary. And we have fewer of these scenes of sorcery and black magic and, you know, a devil's Sabbath and things like that, that we have in the earlier novels. And the mage or magician figure is replaced by the Peter... Stanhope figure. So I kind of think something from the epilogue where Prospero gives up on magic, right? My charms are all or thrown. Something like that would be a reference to what Williams is trying to do instead, I think. Um, Prospero says, now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant. So he's given up on on those things. So if this is maybe Stanhope's last play, something about now I want art to enchant. And want there does not mean desire, but lack. Now I lack the art to enchant. Um, and yet this is a work of art that does enchant, as is The Tempest, and as are Prospero's words. So it's a bit of dramatic irony there.
0: Do you have it pulled up? Would you like to read the epilogue?
1: Well, I would love to. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free.
0: That's oh, so great. It's one of my favorite things that like Shakespeare's written and it's, Oh, it's
1: so beautiful because it's it's speaking directly to the audience like it's your good hands, your applause for my play that will will set me free. How about Relieved by Prayer? Mm-hmm. That might not be a good title for Stanhope's play, but it might be a good title for this novel or for one of the chapters,
0: Relieved by Prayer. Absolutely. And prayer as a kind of as a kind of weapon um, engine
1: against the almighty to mm-hmm. quote is that herbert I think that's Herbert.
0: yes yes i think so i can't think of a better note to end on sophie burkhart serena higgins thank you so much for joining me as we have covered close to the end of descent into hell listeners thank you looking forward to finishing up this novel with you thank you all
1: Counter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent
0: plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams stand.